CSN International presents To Every Man an Answer, the live apologetics program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a Bible question or a question on the Christian faith, you can call us at 1-888-827-5276. Again, that's 1-888-ASK-CSN. Let's get things started. Here's today's host, Mike Kessler. Hi, and welcome to Monday's edition of To Every Man and Answer. We get together every weekday afternoon at this time, answering questions about the Bible from the Bible, looking at current events through a biblical worldview, and also what we hear in church. Is it even in the Bible at all? If you've got a question you'd like to ask us, if you've been reading your Bible, or if you have been sharing your faith with a friend, and they've asked you a difficult question, that's why we're here, so you can have your questions answered. That number to call again, 8888-ASK-CSN. It's toll free again, 8888-ASK-CSN. Joining me today, special guest, featured CSN speaker here on the weekend, Scott Parker from Calvary Chapel, Festus, Crystal City, Missouri. Hi and welcome. Hi, Mike. It's great to be with you today. Blessing to be with you. Looking forward to... uh to uh, answering some questions with you, all the things going on. Tell us a little bit about this revival that's going on in Tennessee. Oh, my goodness, Mike. So it's interesting because, um, you know, it's it's a university and a theological seminary that's there uh, not far from Lexington, Kentucky is where it's at. And it's actually about two hours, only about two hours from where I was born, raised, lived all my life until I came here to St. Louis. And um, anyway, what's happened there, and I've been following on social media, and um, it's very interesting because what happened was on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, uh, they had their typical uh, chapel for their students that they have at 10 a.m., their time, you know, every Wednesday. And uh, a young pastor had been, did the Bible study, and I actually, I actually watched the Bible study uh, on YouTube, and he just did a real simple, just a real simple teaching on Romans chapter 12, really emphasizing love and loving each other and, and things like that. It was, it was good, but it was really simple. What happened was afterwards, when they were done, uh, some of the students just decided to stay in the chapel and pray. And as they did throughout the day, more students joined them, and then more students joined them. Then they started worshiping. And then what happened was they they a crowd gathered, and they began worshiping the Lord. And so this has gone on now since Wednesday for twenty four hours a day. Uh, the last re- the last thing I read on on uh, Facebook there was a report, uh, you know, during hour one hundred and twenty one of revival, <laughs> what was happening. But Mike, what's what's going on is this: there's there's no one really leading this except for the Holy Spirit. There's no one center stage. There, there's no, you know, no big name preachers talking. There's, um, it's students that are leading worship and all they have is a guitar and a piano and somebody on a cajon, you know, keeping a beat. Uh, so it's not a big band. And then what they do is, you know, when those students get tired, other students come up and they just take over and lead worship. Um, it's really incredible. But the one thing that I am seeing in the reports coming from there, is that what's going on is lots of prayers of repentance, lots of repentance going on, lots of lots of people uh, humbling themselves before the Lord. And what's happened now is parents, grandparents have gotten involved. Uh, a lot of Christian uh, colleges from around the country have been sending uh, their students on buses 
uh, to be part of this. And they say that, you know, during, you know, during the night hours, you got less people, of course, because people are going to sleep. Uh, in the early mornings, there's a little less people. And then what happens is, you know, by the midday, the place is packed. Thousands of people are showing up and, uh, and the place is just packed with worshipers. And so that's what's been going on. But the, the reports I've been getting and been seeing about it, it's, it, it just, it really is all about people humbling themselves before the Lord, repenting of their sins. Every once in a while, someone will get up and have a scripture. They'll read a scripture. Um, and maybe somebody might make a call, you know, for repentance or somebody to, you know, come up and pray and people will pray with you. But if you, if you look online and you see some of the live feeds or you see some of the pictures, you just see all these groups of kids just hugging each other and just in, in circles praying for each other, um, you know, like that or on their knees. It's just, Mike, it is amazing. And, um, you know, I can, I can just imagine, you know, as I see that, you know, and then imagine what was happening during the Jesus movement, you know, that, uh, that many of you were part of and saw. And, uh, I tell you, Mike, it makes me hungry for revival. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to, uh, the great things God does in the future. You know, we look back yeah. at history and see these different revivals at different times. And I believe the uh, 60s, early 70s Jesus movement was absolutely a revival. Yeah. But we need one so bad right now in America and to continue to pray that God opens the doors for that because we're living in exciting times. Let's go ahead and go to the phones again. 8888 ask CSN's the number to call. We got some lines open. Let's go to Dwight, Winslow, Arizona. Hi, welcome. Hi, um, hi, Mike and everybody. Hey, this is Dwight from Winslow. I, I have a question, or actually, I wanted to share about um, this Byzantine coin that they found. It's an um, Israeli archaeologist uncover Byzantine-era coin depicting, depicting Jesus' crucifixion. Um, it was, it's an article that was written in the CBN News back in 8-18-2021. Uh, I paraphrase the article. It says, some archaeologists discovered near Tel Aviv, Israel, uh, where they unearthed around two years ago on 8-18-2021 a rare gold coin that dates back to 638 or 639 A.D., which is 7th century, which depicts Jesus Christ's crucifixion at Golgotha on one side and has the head of the Byzantine emperor, Heraclius, on the other side. Okay, I like how the, how the Bible is confirmed by archaeologists. What are you guys' thoughts on all of that? Your thoughts, Scott? Well, if, if it's authentic and it's true, I think it's just another evidence um, that that there were crucifixions that took place by the Romans in the land of Israel. Now, I will say this. I will say for for a long, long time, for, forever, uh, what happened was critics of the Bible would say that the Bible's wrong and the Gospels are wrong because um, the Romans didn't actually crucify people in the land of Israel. Um, critics of the Bible said that ever since you know the Bible was written. But then what happened was in 1968, um, there was actually a, a, a grave that was found as builders in Israel were, you know, excavating and building buildings. Um, what happened was they found a graveyard, and in that graveyard they found the, an ossuary, which is a bone box 
Um, in ancient times in Israel, what would happen is when they would bury people in graves and then after their body would decay, they would take the, the remaining bones and put them in an ossuary or a bone box. There was a bone box discovered by a man by the name of John or Yohanan in Hebrew. His name was John. And when they opened that bone box, what they found is they found a heel. Now, this is amazing to me. They found a heel, and it actually had a Roman spike driven through the heel to prove that that crucifixions definitely happened during the first century uh, because the bones and everything in the bone box, it all dated back to the first century. And so it was interesting because it was when when they found this and archaeologists looked at it, scientists looked at it, they're like, this is exactly what Romans did to people when they crucified them. And there was evidence uh, that this man had been crucified among that. And so what's interesting is there we have, you know, definite, tangible, physical evidence, um, you know, back in 1968. Uh, and that was the first, that was actually the first, you know, tangible physical evidence that we had uh, or that we have of uh, crucifixions actually taking place in uh, the land of Israel uh, besides writings, you know, besides the Bible and besides, you know, other uh, documents and writings that mention it. We're talking about physical evidence. So it's amazing. And Mike, you know, there's another thing about this that's amazing to me that the first piece of evidence that we would find that's physical uh, to prove the the fact that people were crucified uh, in the land of Israel in the first century by the Romans, it's interesting to me that it's a heel bone because the very first prophecy about the Messiah coming and dying is in Genesis 3.15 where it talks about uh, he would have his heel bruised. And how interesting is it? I think it's a, it, I think it's a glorious thing. Uh, that the that the first piece of physical evidence that we find to prove the Romans did crucify people on crosses in the land of Israel is a heel bone because it matches the very first prophecy in the whole Bible concerning the Messiah to come and him and him defeating the devil and uh, and doing it by dying on the cross. So uh, I haven't personally heard a lot about this coin, uh, but I, I but hearing about it, I don't doubt it. And if it is authentic and it's it's all true, I think it's wonderful because it's just another piece of evidence, you know, that uh, that crucifixions, you know, were done there in Israel in the first century. So, Mike? Yeah, Byzantine coins with, um, you know, pictures of Jesus on it are not really that rare. In fact, no. you can look them up and they're, they're all over. So, no, I, I just think it's another piece of evidence that proves everything that the Bible says. So I hope that helps, Dwight. Yeah, it sure does, actually. And can I ask one more question about the sure. Urim and the Thummim? Yes. What, I know they're inside the breastplate of the priest, the high priest, but what exactly is that? Some people believe, and I am one, that it was actually a white stone and a black stone in a little bag that the priests would carry, as you said, in on their breastplate. And as they would consult the Lord, they would pray and ask God, yes or no, should we go out as David did when he consulted the Lord concerning meeting the Philistines uh, uh, in the valley or up in, in, you know, as he did before, all these things. And he would consult the Lord, and they would then pray and reach into this bag and pull out a stone. If it was a white stone, it would be yes. If it was a black stone, 
it would be no. Now, it is interesting when you study Revelation, the Bible talks to, uh, is talking to believers and he says, and to him I will give a white stone or a yes vote. And I always thought that was kind of interesting, but that's what many people believe, uh, that was. Now, I've I've never talked to you about this, Scott, on on your thoughts Mm -hmm. on it, but your thoughts. You know, Mike, I agree with what you said. Um, you know, when you look at the different opinions of what it could be, because the, the words urum and thumum, or thumum, however you say that, um, what those words mean is they mean lights and perfections. And I've read commentaries that say that, you know, what would happen is when the high priest would have to use those that somehow they'd magically light up and glow and get the high priest an answer and stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot of far-fetched things. Uh, but what Mike was talking about, about the white stone and black stone, we do know um, that that was that was true, that it was used for that. And I loved your connection going there uh, to Revelation, because that's exactly what Jesus, uh, you know, told the church there is that uh, he would give them a white stone, which, again, like you said, mean yes. And I, th- I think that's the easiest way to understand it. Regardless of what it is, we do know this. We do know that just like the Lord allowed under the old covenant uh, for the priests and the people of God uh, to refer to things like the casting of lots, you know, in the book of Proverbs, it says the casting of lots uh, or like a like a lot, lot cast in the lap. Um, the decision of it is from the Lord. We know this, that the Urim and Thummim was something kin to lots, you know, uh, the casting of lots and, uh, some say that, you know, the high priest had him in a bag in his, in his garment there and reached in and pulled it out. And, you know, the decision was of the Lord. So, uh, regardless of exactly what it was, which I agree with Mike on it, but exactly what it was, uh, really is not the point. The whole point is somehow the Lord allowed it to be a decision maker for the priest and in, in deciding things that, uh, they were wanting to know from the Lord. So. Yeah, Revelation 2.17 is where you find uh, that God will give him a white stone. Dwight, I hope that helps. All right, yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it, guys. I appreciate it. God bless you, and thanks so much for the call. Stay on the line. We'll send you out a couple of books, a couple of DVDs, the movie Jesus. And with that, we'll go to Joel in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Hi, welcome. Yes, uh, can you hear me better? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, um, I've been attending a... A local Nazarene Hispanic cruises for two years now, and um, well, I had him, but uh, I wasn't sure. And about uh, their doctrines, every time I asked questions, they would they would uh, they would not answer it, or or they would not they would just ignore me. And um, through prayer and and. In asking the Lord and, and searching, um, I found out they're preterists. They're full preterists, and um, they don't believe in the prophecies. They believe that uh, all the prophecies were already confirmed in, in 70 AD and all that. Mm-hmm. And I was asking um, um, a word of wisdom. Uh, do, you, do you think I should continue uh, fellowshipping with them if they're my brothers and sisters? Because I well, only learned to love them, but um, uh, I don't know. 
Well, Joel, I don't think we're, we're, we're going to sit in the judgment seat to decide whether somebody's a Christian or not when they do profess Christ as Savior and that Jesus is Lord and things like this. Now, some things the Bible automatically have judged. We can, with all uh, authority, say that is wrong. Uh, they have deviated from God's Word uh, and everything. The problem that I have with the preterist view is that, first of all, I believe it, 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 it's screaming inaccuracy because the Bible says in Revelation, every living thing in the sea dies. And that did not happen in 70 AD. There was not a mark where you could not buy or sell without the mark, name, or number on your hand or on your forehead globally. That did not happen in 70 AD. Every uh, tree burned up, uh, you know, the grass burned up. That did not happen in 70 AD. We didn't, we don't find the Battle of Armageddon in 70 AD. There is so many problems with it. Well, then they come along and say, well, that's metaphorically speaking. They try to spiritualize it. Well, if that's metaphorically speaking, then how do we know anything in the Bible is true? Now, obviously, if something is metaphorical, like a beast with seven heads and ten horns, we know that, yeah, there's not a beast like that, so that is metaphorical. Or Jesus said, I am the door. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is an oak door. Uh, No, we know that's metaphorical. I'll gather them under my wing. Now God's a big chicken. Uh, no, that's metaphorical. But when the Bible says every living thing in the sea dies, there's nothing metaphorical about that. When the Bible says the water turns to blood, there's nothing metaphorical about that. When the Bible says you're going to have to have a mark, name, or number on your hand or on your forehead to buy or sell because of the new one-world order monetary system, that didn't happen in 70 AD. And when you begin to look at this, here's where the problem comes in. If they're that far off and interpreting biblical prophecy, I would have trouble believing anything they say concerning anything prophetical. Now, when you realize that one-third of the Bible is prophecy, two-thirds have already happened— which there's a staggering one third yet that's going of that two third or, or of that one third that's still going to happen, primarily found in Revelation, but we find it in Daniel and Jeremiah and other places in uh, Matthew chapter 24, Luke 21, all the way through the Bible, we find this. Now all of a sudden you have to start chopping the Bible up so bad that to really do any kind of expository teaching or line upon line teaching out of God's word, you wouldn't have a clue what it's talking about. So I personally would not go to a church that held those views because of the other problems that it it will interpret. In other words, you've established your exegesis of the Scripture, what you're taking out of Scripture. Um, And if it's that far off, what other areas are you— uh, going to lunch on. And I, I really believe this is where the problem is. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm not saying they're not brothers and somebody I'd sit down and have lunch with. But as far as receiving teaching from something that I believe is that far off, um, when we find that, and in fact, a, a church that says, well, we don't even teach out of Revelation, I would not go to that church mm-hmm. because you are really eliminating 
who Jesus is. The Bible says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means who Jesus is. He's not the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Irishman holding the lambs in a picture in the Christian bookstore. The Bible talks about this Jesus who not only cares about his churches in so much that he rebukes some of them, but we also find in Revelation when he comes back at the Battle of Armageddon where he himself makes war with the kings of the earth, and it's a big, big old bloodbath is what it is. That is not generally the picture of Jesus people think of, nor maybe want to think of. But it's the Jesus that's in the Bible, and by leaving out biblical prophecy because, well, it's just too hard to understand. I don't even think the book of Revelation should be canonized. Really bespeaks of of a very poor understanding of Scripture, and a very poor understanding of prophetic utterance. Your thoughts, Mike? I agree one hundred percent. And you know, a couple things in addition to what you said. You know, um, right there in Revelation chapter six. You know, in the first set of judgments, the sealed judgments, um, you have uh, in the fourth seal you have one-fourth of the population of planet Earth wiped out. And uh, we have never seen that. We haven't seen that yet, as you said, among all those other things you listed. And what we get into, too, is we, we get into this this problem of, of, of spiritualizing the Bible. Uh, Mike, like you said, some of, the, some of the Bible is speaking to us in figurative language, language. But there's so much revelation, like when you're reading Revelation – if it's usually if it's spiritual, if it's to be spiritualized or if it's figurative language, it will usually use the words like or as, you know, I, John saw this and it was like this or as this. Um, but what happens is you end up spiritualizing all this stuff that is literal. And when you come to, for instance, Revelation chapter 20, and it speaks of the millennial reign where Jesus will will come back to the earth visibly, physically, bodily set up his kingdom on the earth and rule and reign from Jerusalem. According to the Old Testament prophecies, he will uh, set up his throne in Jerusalem and rule the world from there for a thousand years. What happens is a lot of these people, a lot of these people are what they call amillennialists. That, in other words, they believe in no millennium, that that's not, that's not going to happen. Uh, and they say the number thousand there is not literal. It's spiritual. It's just a number to mean a, a very long time or literally an unlimited amount of time. But what's amazing, if you read Revelation chapter 20, three different times, it'll tell you, and when the thousand years was ended, when the thousand years was finished, when the thousand years was over, <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, it's telling us very clearly that the word 1000 there is literal. It's a literal 1000 year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. And when people spiritualize that, what they say is things like this. Well, Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, that we're in the millennium right now. He's ruling and reigning in the hearts of Christians on the earth. That's what these kind of people say. That is that is so unbiblical. That is not true. Um, so when it comes to that kind of stuff, I mean, when you look at the millennium, what's going to happen at the, in Revelation chapter 20 is Satan is going to be bound in the abyss for those 1,000 years. Okay, Satan is not bound right now. He is alive and well on planet Earth and, and wreaking havoc in people's lives. And we can see that. But those who spiritualize that say, well, no, no, he's bound. He was bound at the cross. And so 
because when Jesus died, you know, now he's he's bound. And so, um, you know, that scripture is fulfilled. No, it is not. These are things to happen in the future. And when you read the book of Revelation, it tells us very clearly in chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus tells John to write the things which are, chapter 1, write the things which, I'm sorry, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1, his vision of Jesus. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, which is the church age, and then the things that will take place after this. So in chapter 4 now, through the rest of the book, that's all future. That's all to happen. It has not been fulfilled when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, like the predators want to say. And when ha- what happens is, to get that idea, you have to take the book of Revelation, spiritualize it all. And when you do, you lose a lot of what I think is very important doctrine uh, when it comes to the end times. And it actually comes to Jesus himself. Uh, because as Mike said, the, the, revel- the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the end times. It does reveal to us what's going to happen in the future in the end times, but it's a revelation of Jesus. And we got to be careful uh, when we spiritualize the book of Revelation in places where it's literal. And this is what you end up with. So I would be very careful in listening to teaching like that. And, you know, I also uh, would say this to Joe and, and, you know, as, as a, as a pastor, you know, I, I you know, I wouldn't like it if somebody told people at my church, hey, you need to leave Calvary Chapel and go to another church because of what they're teaching. But I will say this, just to be honest with you, and as a pastor, uh, maybe trying to help you out here, you know, in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 3, it says, can two walk together except they're agreed? And what I have found is even as a pastor, when people come to our church and they don't agree with, you know, our doctrine or the way uh, we teach certain things that I believe are important, like I do believe uh, prophecy is important. I don't believe the teaching of prophecy should be enough to make us divide fellowship and not have fellowship with other Christians. But when we're talking about going to church uh, somewhere, we're talking about being fully invested, investing our lives uh, in the church and in the people of that church. And when it comes to prophecy, you know, prophecy takes up almost one third of the Bible. And if we can't agree on prophecy, it's not that we can't fellowship with those people or we're not brothers and sisters with them. But if we can't agree on what we believe about those things, your fellowship is going to be pretty shallow. And I think like what you just said, where you're like, hey, sometimes they won't talk to me. They won't answer my questions. Well, I understand why they won't, because they don't believe what you believe. And um, so either either they're doing it on purpose or or they just don't know what to tell you. It, it could be, you know, a couple of different things. But I would say as a pastor, I just know when people have come to our church and they've believed something different, that sometimes that has caused trouble. It's, it's caused pockets of people that have uh, looked at things different ways. and It's not been healthy for the church. So you might want to think about that. Mike? Yeah, Joe, I, I, I would probably look around, see what else is out there. You know, what you what you believe is how you live your life. So it's important yeah. you believe right. Stay in line. We'll get you out some books, DVDs. Coming up on a break, everyone. Don't go away. We'll have more to every minute answer coming up right after this. If you are 65 or older, you know this. It's really frustrating to deal with out-of-pocket medical expenses, just watching your hard-earned dollars flying out the window. Well, here's something that can really help, and it's worth taking a minute to look into. MediShare as a new option. It's called MediShare 65+. Plus. And MediShare is a community of Christians who share each other's health care bills. It really is a community, too. People encourage and pray for each other. 
MediShare 65 Plus is a low-cost option for those with Medicare Parts A and B, and it fills in the gaps where Medicare stops. It's a great way to fight inflation, too. You can lock in one low monthly price for up to 10 years, and you can use your Medicare-approved doctor, and you also get telehealth 24-7 service, so you don't have to leave your home for the little stuff. Very worth looking into, and it's so easy to find out why people rave about the customer service at MediShare. They're easy to talk to. Call 833-90-SHARE. That's 833-90-SHARE. 833-90-SHARE. Does the Bible seem too big, complicated, and overwhelming? There's a free Bible resource that's been around for more than 25 years and is used and trusted by millions worldwide. The Enduring Word Bible Commentary by David Guzik is a clear and simple way for everyday Christians and even seasoned Bible teachers to study God's Word. David's commentary not only breaks down the entire Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, it also provides helpful quotes from well-known Bible expositors throughout history. The commentary has also been translated into many languages, including Spanish, Arabic, Chinese, and more. Find the Enduring Word Bible Commentary as well as a free downloadable ebook called The King's Kingdom, a deeper look at the Sermon on the Mount by David Guzik at EnduringWord.com forward slash CSN. That's EnduringWord.com forward slash CSN. CSN International. me back to part two of Terry Mananetzer here on this Monday afternoon with Scott Parker. I'm your host, Mike Kessler. And uh, once again, we want to just encourage you, read your Bible every day. So important in the days we live, you want to be sure to do that. Well, let's go ahead and go back to the phones. We have David on the line in Las Vegas. Hello? Yes. Hi, David. Hi. How are you guys, Pastor Mike, Pastor Scott? Good day to you. How may we help? I, just, uh, I have a question about the Daniel Nine prophecy. It is my it is my understanding that scholars are divided, and that there's like um, several schools of thought about the date setting of the cross. Right? Some believe that it was 33 A.D., 30 A.D., 32 A.D. So my question is, um, when the decree was given from Artaxerxes, the 69th week, right? They say that that prophecy that the Messiah should be cut off, that that prophecy was fulfilled to the day. How do we know that that's accurate if we don't know the the actual date setting of the cross? Well, then, then you would have to do the math, because again, the Babylonian calendar was predicated upon a 360-day year. So if you add up the number of days, 360 days, times 69 seven-year periods of time, it comes out to 173,880 days, which brings you to, um, brings you to uh, April 6, 32 AD, because we know that the, uh, the command went forth on March 14th, uh, 445 BC. So if you just use that, that'll give you probably the best, the best way of, of figuring it out. Um, your thoughts on that, Scott? 
Yeah, and I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, Mike, because it fits perfectly with the scriptures, number one. And number two, there's a wonderful, wonderful book that you might want to get called The Coming Prince. And it was written by Sir Robert Anderson. And uh, he was the one who, you know, uh, took all of those figures, uh, based it off of the um, the uh, decree uh, that Artaxerxes made there in 445 B.C. Because before that, there were other decrees that were made. Um, but this is the only one where when it was given um, by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., that was the one that spoke about not only rebuilding the temple, but also the, the city of Jerusalem and the walls. And if you look there at uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, uh, and, and the scripture there, it actually speaks of that, that that's part of that. And so uh, that's a wonderful book that goes in, you know, in depth on how you come to that, 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 uh, that date. But, you know, understanding again, that when you're talking about a Babylonian calendar, even a Jewish calendar being 360 days, and then you just do the time, you know, you just do, you start with a time marker of Artaxerxes decree in 445 BC, March 14th, you take it from there and the math does the rest. <laughs> it really does. And then uh, the important thing is this, is it puts you, okay, it, it puts you right at the time of Jesus, okay? Um, even, even if Sir Robert Anderson isn't completely correct about everything he says in the book, well, you know what? If you just do the math um, from the date of 445 BC, it's going to put you right at the time of Jesus when he died. But I, I think that's accurate uh, from everything that I've read and different opinions I've read about it. I think that's the most accurate. Mike? Yeah, and also what Jesus said when he came in on a donkey, mm-hmm. uh, when he descended from the Mount of Olives there on Palm Sunday, he said this. He said, uh, he, Jesus, as he's beginning his descent, he wept over the city. And he said, this is this thy day of salvation. God does not hold people responsible for what they don't know. That's why the Bible says God's law is written on men's hearts, even those non-believers. Even a non-believer knows it's wrong to kill people. Even a non-believer knows it's wrong to steal. Even a non-believer knows that it's wrong to lie. They know that. Now, they can be in rebellion to their own conscience, which I believe this is why they drink and get loaded and stoned and become preoccupied with many other things of the world so they won't hear that echoing conscience saying, hey, you're, you're on the wrong road. But Jesus said, it was your day of salvation. I do not believe that Jesus would have said that unless those Sadducees and Pharisees who had the Scriptures knew the exact day. Had they just done the paperwork, they would have known it was their day of salvation. And then they said, they said, well, you tell your disciples, tell these people to shut up as they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now is what Hosanna means. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that if they were to remain quiet, these very stones would cry out. Why? Jesus had gone into the city of Jerusalem on other times. In fact, the Bible says he'd go out to the Mount of Olives and pray regularly. So why this time? Why is this time different than the other times? I believe it's a direct fulfillment of what the Bible says here 
in Daniel chapter 9. Hope that helps, David. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. So I can safely come to the conclusion that he died in A.D. 32 then. Yeah, that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having my question. Thank you for answering it. God bless you guys. I don't want to take too much more of your time. <laughs> oh, no, David, you don't. Call us back anytime. Stay in line. I'll send you out some books, some DVDs, the movie Jesus. I know you'll really enjoy it. Great for evangelism. You know, sometimes it is hard to tell, especially friends or relatives, about the Lord because, well, it's the close proximity of that relationship. But, you know, sometimes because of that, you can say, hey, I came across this really cool DVD called God of Wonders. Watch it and tell me what's wrong with it. And they'll watch it. And boy, I'll tell you, it, it sows a lot of really good seed in their heart. David, stay in line. We'll get you taken care of. With that, we'll go to Joshua, Waterford, Texas. Hi. Hello. Hi. How may we help? Uh, yes, sir. <clears throat> okay, so I'll get right to the point. Um, I know I'm a born-again Christian. I uh, have grown up in a relationship a lot in the, with the Lord in the last six to 12 months or so and was ignorant to a lot of sin that I was committing and stuff. And so, okay, my question is about a relationship that I have with my girlfriend. She's much younger than I am. And I think we've been together for about three and a half to four years. We made the decision to move in together a while back. I felt very conflict, con um, convicted about it. And so about nine to 12 months ago, I made a vow of celibacy and it was not reciprocated. Um, and so about three months ago, I was coming to the point where I felt like I was, it was, I need the end of the relationship. Well, at that time when I was getting ready to do that, um, she got diagnosed with cancer. And so we live together. We're not sexually active. Um, I go to Calvary Chapel in Weatherford. Um, I have talked to my pastor about it and gotten his opinion. And uh, his opinion is that, you know, I need to make up my mind because she wants to get married. I, I'm older than her, like 13 to 14 years. I've been married and stuff. So I have reservations. I, it's, it's my personal issue there. And so I don't know what to do, what's best for her. And I'm trying to honor God and I am working so hard to get my relationship right with God. And I'm trying to do what's best and not just for myself, but for her and what honors God. And his situation, he said, the pastor, that a sickness or, and, and plus, you know, since the economy, we've kind of relied on each other financially. So it's gone to that point as well where we need each other financially. So it's, it's, it's kind of a big problem if we were to separate for each of us, you know, to find a place to go and stuff um, right away. But, but she has cancer. And so I proposed to her that we wait until she gets, cause she asked me just this weekend, where's this relationship going? And I got a lot of going on with, her sickness has a lot of effect on me. She's not in her right state of mind. And so I just said, we're getting a PET scan next week. Why don't we see you have like four to 12 treatments left and we can evaluate then. But the pastor told me that a sickness and finances should not hold me back in honoring God and stuff. 
So I need to end to honor her as well. And I need to make up my mind and either marry her or move. We need to move out or separate. Joshua, thank you for being so candid with us. I, I think your pastor there gave you very good advice. Um, I believe there's always an excuse to not do the best that God has for us. I believe there's always an excuse for that. Um, it may very well be that through obedience to God, um, I believe that there may be a healing here as well. Now, there's always, again, um, a fear that we have. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. And so it sounds like you have some fear turning into reservation uh, about getting married. Is this girl a believer? Yes, sir. Well, then the Bible says that, remember, Jesus met the woman at the well. And he said, where is your husband? And she said, uh, I have none, Lord. I don't know whether she's trying to pick up on Jesus or what there. That's kind of weird. <laughs> look it up. When you have a chance, Look, everybody look at that one up close. I, I have no husband. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, you've answered right, because the man you're living with is not your husband. Very much aware of this woman's sinful condition. And she responds, says, whoa, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, see, the the thing that's interesting here is that Jesus cited that, and it was probably a place of conviction in this woman's heart as well. And so when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says those that practice such lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God, and sexual immorality is one of them. Now you say, well, we're not involved uh, that way. I take a vow of celibacy. Well, I appreciate that, but nevertheless, the Bible says to abstain from appearances of evil and from everybody on your block, perhaps even in your church, view you guys as shacked up rather than than some kind of a nursemaid or something along that lines. So I, I really think your pastor there has given you good advice. Your thoughts? I agree 100%, Mike. I agree 100%, Joshua, with your pastor. I agree 100% with everything Mike just said. Some of the points that he brought up uh, were on my heart, too. I had here on my Bible, I have 1 Corinthians chapter, or sorry, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in verse 22, abstain from all form of evil. Um, you know, if you're living with someone, but yet you're saying we're not having sex, well, uh, I hate to tell you this, but every nobody believes this except you. Um, and what you're doing, <laughs> seriously, and what you're doing as a Christian is you're just giving Jesus a bad name. You're, and and what's happening is uh, what you guys are doing is is you're actually ruining your testimonies. Um, you know, a lot of people aren't going to believe that you're Christians because of what you're doing. And they have good reason to believe that. And I'll tell you why. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it makes it very clear about a man who was in the church at Corinth. And it said he had, or literally it says he has his father's uh, wife, which means he was living with and treating his stepmother as his own wife. They were living together. Of course, he was enjoying all the benefits of that. And Paul chided the church at Corinth by saying, you guys say you're gracious and you're patting yourself on the back about being gracious and letting people live this way and come to your church. Paul says, it's a shame. It's a shame. Someone should tell these people the truth. And if you keep reading 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes it very clear 
that when when anyone is in the church and they're they're committing sexual immorality and you know they're 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 having sex like that uh Paul says not to fellowship with them he says to to literally uh deal with them and if they don't repent then he says to excommunicate them from the church and for the church then to treat them as unbelievers don't even fellowship with with one he says don't even eat with them so this is a this is a serious thing and and I know as Mike said I I do appreciate number one your honesty your openness here um but I would say this cuz it sounded like when you were talking it sounded like you know that you already was feeling like this is wrong which honestly if if both of you are Christians and you have the Holy Spirit both of you should have felt like this is wrong uh quite a long time ago um but I would say this if you felt that stirring of the Lord that, hey, this was wrong and you're being convicted by it, and then she got cancer, you know, there's always going to be something to come up to give you an excuse not to stop doing what you what you should not be doing. You know, uh, as Mike said, it, it, it there will always be some reason to not do what God tells us to do. That's, Satan is great uh, at coming up with excuses for us to not obey God. It just, it happens all the time. And you know what? Uh, if, if, if this decision were easy, um, then you know what everybody would be following the Lord. Following the Lord is not always the easiest thing, and it and it's also not also the popular thing with other people who don't understand what being a Christian is. Um, you know, being a Christian is this. Jesus said, "If you want to follow me, uh, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me." That means death to self. That means death to what I want and my way of living. And and I think you have to be careful because, you know, num- number one, sex in a relationship before people are married, uh, not only is it a sin, it is also a sin that if you continue in it, the Bible is clear. It's a sin that will keep you out of the kingdom of God and send you to hell. It, it is, point blank. Number two, what's interesting is sex before marriage clouds your judgment. It, it makes you so emotional. It makes you so emotionally invested that what happens now, you're not able to make good, clear decisions of right and wrong because your soul is now attached to this person in a way that it wouldn't be if you hadn't had sex with her. And so that's another thing. Um, and then on top of that, when you pile on top of that, that, hey, now she's been diagnosed with cancer, um, that also is throwing the emotions into the mix of your decision. Because uh, now you feel like, well, if I, if if we don't live together, I'm abandoning abandoning her. If we don't live together, we can't afford it. Things like that. Um, I, I I believe your pastor's right, and biblically, I believe the right thing to do would be to uh, to not live together. Um, and I also would say this too, as a pastor who who does weddings, as a pastor who does lots of marital counseling, I would say too that it would be really great for you guys, you know, to to move out from one another and not live together. And then, and not have sex, of course, and then start your relationship over. Start over again, because when when a relationship has started out on a faulty foundation, it's hard to build on that. So I would say, go do the right thing. Repent, move out from each other, start your relationship over, and then go to your pastor and allow your pastor to to give you some guidance in how to start 
this relationship in a biblical way. And I guarantee you, if you do that, you will not be sorry for that. So anyhow, but we'll definitely be praying uh, for your fiance or for your girlfriend that the Lord would touch her and heal her. And, but as Mike said, I totally agree with that too. You know, your obedience to the Lord may just open the windows of heaven and cause the Lord to provide for you. Uh, take away your worries about that. And Mike said he might touch her and heal her. And now we're not guaranteeing that, but I tell you what, obedience to God has its benefits. And if, if right now you can't make it without the two incomes and you have to live together, you know, if you have to sin to do that. And now she's got cancer. I, you know, I would say, okay, let's, let's repent of our sin. Let's start over and do this the Lord's way and see what the Lord does with the whole thing. That would be my advice. Mike. Amen. Joshua, I hope that helps. Yes, uh, it does. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. It's a very hard Joshua, decision. I think and... the main part, what I was going to tell you, I think the main part is you, you, you're at a, you're at a, at a crux where your decision is hard. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's why uh, you have the reservations because you can see both sides of it. But again, if you do what the Bible says to do, you honor God, God will honor you. Always works that way. So I, that's the that's the direction I would go. I, uh, you know, uh, and and listen, God is bigger than the things that we've done wrong. So even if you make the wrong decision in whatever it is you're doing here, God's bigger than that and will correct it as well. But to do nothing and stay where you're at and stay in that relationship where people see you shacked up and, you know, well, hey, he's doing it, I guess we can do. Uh, I, I think that that's a, a troubling thing. There might be a sister or, or a brother that you can move in with in your church until you um, can work through this um, in your in your thoughts and in, in spiritually. Uh, but you know, if you separate from her, you might really realize you really do miss her. And don't let the age gap throw you off on that. Um, because we find all the way through the Bible, there were uh, relationships where there was huge age gaps. Um, and uh, so I, I hope that wouldn't be a wouldn't be something that would stop you just simply because of that. But again, there's always, there can always be a reason to not do what God wants you to do. Stay in line, send you out some books, some DVDs. Joshua, our prayers are with you, okay? I appreciate it. If you could, would just pray with me, I'd really appreciate that. Father, may you give Joshua wisdom, mm-hmm. his girlfriend wisdom. May you reach your hand of healing out to her. Lord, through all of this, you got both of their attentions. And so we ask you now that you would work your perfect will for both of their lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Joshua, stay alive. We'll get you taken care of, and um, we're here for you if you need us. But I think your pastor gave you good advice. Let's go to Sam, Des Moines, Iowa. Hi, welcome. Good evening, pastors. Uh, pastor, pastor, pastor Mike Parker. Yes, how may we help? Hi, I have a question about marriage, and uh, I know what the Bible says about uh, marriage to a non-believer, and I'm just wondering, would it be a, like, I feel like I'm cursed, or not cursed, but maybe God doesn't approve of my marriage, but I had prayed about the marriage for a while, and I was consulted with my pastor and a few other pastors, and it's been like 50-50, but I'm just wondering, is the Bible or anywhere staying there? Because I haven't really found any scriptures on it where 
it's okay, I guess, to marry a non-believer? Well, no, it's never. The The Bible says not to be an equally yoked together. Uh, and I believe that's not only in marriage. I believe that's in business. I believe that's uh, partnerships, all those kinds of things. Um, and and uh, what fellowship, uh, Paul says, does light have with darkness? We have no business dating worldly people, being involved with worldly people whatsoever. That's just what the Bible says. Now, if you find yourself married to a non-believer, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about that. Your thoughts? I agree with that 100%. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul definitely says, if you're married to an unbeliever right now, do not seek to be loosed to stay with them. Um, and the only the only uh, uh, reason for divorce that Paul gives there in First Corinthians seven is if an unbelieving spouse, you know, leaves and deserts an, a believing spouse. But I would say this too. I would say, you know, the reason for Second Corinthians six fourteen that Mike quoted, uh, "Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers." The purpose, the reason for that, uh, is many. But when it comes down to it, when you have a believer and unbeliever. You have to remember this. An unbeliever only has one nature. It's a sinful nature. That's it. That, that's all they're able to do is make their decisions based on the lust of their flesh and desires of what they want instead of what God wants. For a believer, a believer has, you know, we, we still have that old nature, but we have a new nature, uh, by the, that's given to us through the Holy Spirit now that we're to let lead us and to, to, to guide us and to live our life by the new nature. And what's interesting is when an unbeliever, when a believer, you know, is in a intimate, you know, relationship, an emotional relationship or an intimate sexual relationship with a, you know, with a uh, unbeliever, what happens is the, the unbeliever only has one way to go, the flesh. Well, the believer has two ways to go. The, the believer can can be led by the spirit, which is what they're supposed to do. But the, um, the but the believer can also revert back to their old ways and live in the flesh and that's why most of the time, not every time, but most of the time when you have a believer uh, dating and having an intimate relationship with a with a non-believer, uh, most of the time what happens is the believer goes the non-believer's way because the non-believer is going to be – most of the time a non-believer is more insistent, and I want it my way because that's all they know is sin. And many times what happens is the believer has to compromise in order to keep the relationship going. And it, and, and for that reason alone, you know, a believer can go either way. He can, he can go toward the flesh or the spirit. Well, the unbeliever can only go toward the flesh. And so most of the times what happens is the believer a lot of times will cave in. And, that, and why, and I would say this, why put yourself in that position? Uh, to, to have that struggle all the time. As believers, you know, Galatians chapter five, Paul tells us we all, uh, have the, the battle of the flesh and spirit going on in our own hearts and our own lives, uh, without, you know, ha- adding someone else to it. <laughs> you know, we, we've got enough with going on within ourselves to fight against the flesh and to be led by the spirit without having someone else uh, who is total flesh pulling us that way too. So uh, again, and there's other reasons for it, but I think that's a great reason to not be unequally yoked. Mike? Yeah, Sam, I hope that helps. Uh, well, a little bit. Can I give a little background, uh, a little bit of the story as well? Well, so, Sam, we're out of time. I'm I'm so sorry because um, we're actually in the outro music right now. But um, Sam, you're certainly welcome to call us back tomorrow. We'll talk a little bit more about it as well as Janet and the rest. Uh, we'll put you on first thing and so we don't want anybody to have to wait again Um, but uh, so many things going on in the world 
uh, we want to we want to do that. Thanks, Scott, for being on. Everybody have a blessed evening. To find Look out it up for Redemption Crossroads. Or to receive a copy of today's program, please call 1-800-357-4226 or write us to Every Man and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. That toll-free number is 1-800-357-4226. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash T-E-M-A. To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station.